This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. We understand that some of our opinions will not be shared with many people and hope you can still bear with us in order to hear amazing Wisconsin-based stories. We are not licensed therapists or able to give legal advice by any means. Our show notes will provide all of our source materials included for each episode. Now Now on on to to the the show. show. Welcome back to All the Sins of Wisconsin. I am Fallon and I'm here with Mims and we have some special guests today. Mims, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm so excited for today. Um, and our guests. How are you guys? Good. Good. Excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for asking us. We're going to let them introduce themselves and tell everyone a little bit about what they do. And then we're going to ask them lots of really difficult questions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My name is Tracy Plamen, and I am the manager of the Intervention and Prevention Program with Harbor House Domestic Abuse Programs. I am Cassie McDonald. I manage community relations and fundraising at Harbor House. And try both of us, our goal is to educate the community about domestic violence and sexual assault as much as possible. That's awesome. Great. We need a lot more mm-hmm. assistance, education. Yep. yep. So we can stop talking about people getting murdered. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, yeah that would be great. <laughs> okay, so we have questions that we want to dive into. Um, our first one would be, what are the different types of abuse um, that people go through? that maybe we know about and some that we don't. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to understand that any kind of abuse is all about power and control. And whatever kind of form of abuse they use is just a way to exert power and control over another person. Um, you know, there's a wheel of power and control and a wheel of abuse that we use with clients and in our presentations that I think Tracy will probably speak better to because there's not really a limit to what they can use as a form of abuse against someone that they love. Okay, Right, so there's, I mean, that's actually one of the biggest misconceptions about domestic violence is that most people see it or hear it and they think physical violence, Mm -hmm. right? And, And even victims of domestic violence, if it isn't real physical, they don't identify it as as an abusive relationship. And the, the reality is, is there's a lot of different tactics that abuse people who use abuse behaviors use in order to gain and maintain that power and control. So we have, you know, certainly the physical abuse and sexual abuse because there's a huge overlap between, between domestic violence and sexual assault. Um, and so those kind of loom on the outside and the threat of those loom on the outside, but the everyday stuff is verbal abuse, yelling, screaming, swearing, calling you names, demeaning you, degrading you, um, uh, isolation. So they will, and again, it doesn't start with you can't go or you can't see these people. They will create chaos and crisis in your relationship so that you choose to stay with them instead of going with the other people. And then they will try to pin the other people against And so isolation is, is probably one of the first things that happen. And the thing is, is that when it starts, most people who are in that emotional bubble, right? Friends left, right? Because they're isolated yeah. from everybody. 
it's kind of too late. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to note any relationship that becomes abusive doesn't start out as, you know, very obviously abusive because that's not something people would generally go into if that's how the relationship presented itself. You meet someone and you fall in love with them and they treat you super well. And you're like in this extended honeymoon phase Mm -hmm. for a long time. And then suddenly these little things start floating through like, well, why do you have to hang out with your friends? I only saw you twice this week. Why don't you love me? Mm -hmm. Do you just like them more than me? And so then it's like, oh, you know what? I didn't spend enough time with you. That's fair. We're new. I should spend more time with my partner. That's those little things that can be super hard to tell in the beginning of a relationship. Yeah. So you don't even really realize that, you're doing it, and again, we don't we don't recognize it as an as, as a tactic that right. people who use abuse behaviors have. Um, another one is financial. Financial is is really really hard, um, and it's not just that. Um, it, what what happens once you're instilled in that relationship is that person tends to make it seem like they make better decisions and so they control the money. And it gets to the point once you're, your name's not on any bank account, your name's not on credit cards, your name's not on the title of the house or the rent lease or the car. Um, and, and so then they say, you go ahead and leave, but you literally leave with nothing. And right. what, what so many people in this, or I should say outside of this, don't understand is that the option when thinking, we all think that they should leave, but your life literally implodes regardless, either violently or nothing about your life is the same. Yeah. Where you live, how you live, how you feed your kids, how you get to work, if you can get to work, all those things completely implode about your life. And so there is no, well, why don't you just leave? Because there's a hundred and one or possibly a thousand and one reasons why just leaving isn't an option. And that, you know, the number one we know is fear, mm-hmm. fear of something happening to you, right? Which yeah. gets us to another tactic, which is threats. Um, I would say that the top three threats when I started, and I started about 18 years ago in all this was, I'm going to do something to you or something you value most. I'm going to mm-hmm. kill myself or hurt myself, or I'm going to hurt or take the kids. Now yeah. you can fast forward 18 years, same three. Yeah. It's because they're the most impactful. What people who use abusive behaviors do is they target what you value most. Mm-hmm. And if you have children, that's what we value most. Right. And so that's one of the biggest threats. And unfortunately, we've seen, you know, in the past probably five to seven years is children have been murdered. Yeah, and it seems like that has increased yeah. lately. Yep, there's been a lot more murder-suicides where either children are observing Mm -hmm. the murder-suicide or are also murdered along with that. And I think that's something people view as very tragic but aren't taking into consideration what that led up to, how many moments led up to that, and how maybe if we didn't keep it behind closed doors, I'm using finger quotations, but that's, I think the worst part of domestic violence is people think it's a personal problem, Mm -hmm. but it's not, it's a public problem. You know, violence can extend outside the home pretty quickly. Most people who do mass shootings or any kind of public violence start with a domestic violence background, whether being a victim themselves or being someone who's using abusive behaviors or both. And so if you take a look at it from a person who is in an abusive relationship and they may understand that, you know, I do feel like I want to leave, 
but none of my family and friends will talk to me anymore if they had a healthy support system in the first place. Do, do you mind if we stop for one second? Go ahead. So after an abuser or person using abusive behaviors uses all of these forms of abuse and someone is maybe finally ready to explore the option of maybe I can go somewhere else or maybe I need to get help, they've already been, if they had a healthy support system and still had contact with them, they were been isolated from them. Often very well-meaning loved ones will say, if you don't leave your person, you can't be in my life anymore. Those ultimatums, I think, are very well-intentioned, but then you are just furthering that isolation right. and helping that person with abusive behaviors. So that is an issue. And then you don't have access to your bank accounts. You don't have, you don't own your car. Uh, you don't have any, maybe you were, did have a job, but because you were being called 60 times a day by mm. the person using abusive behaviors, your boss fired you for being on your phone too much. So you have no income, you have no access to any assets you may have. And if you have children, there's a whole other kind of ball of issues you roll into. So there's a lot more that goes into whether or not a person can leave, even if they do want to. And it's extremely important to note that the most, it is the most time, the most likely time that it will become lethal is when someone is trying to leave. It's five times or 500 times more likely that is when someone will be killed is when they're trying to leave the relationship. It's the ultimate act of control. Mm -hmm. If you, if I can't have you, no one can. Right. And I think sometimes, unfortunately, people use that as, oh, it's so romantic because they can't live without me. And it is really not. It's really <laughs> not. Uh, anything that ends in murder is not. And right. so it's a very, another kind of common misconception is the leaving is when you're in your most amount of danger. One time I heard this thing. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, where somebody compared um, red flags that you should have noticed early on as thinking it's like butterflies. Um, like when you first are in a relationship and they start doing things that you think are um, like they're giving you a lot of attention and then the, that gives you butterflies. But instead, you should have thought a bit like, why is he pouring so much attention on me? Why is he calling me 60 times or, you know, like things that could be misconstrued as a loving, uh, I don't know, um, gesture really isn't. And in, in fact, it's showing you kind of what will develop later on. And I thought that was really interesting the way that you could feel that way, but it's just something that, you know, could develop later on in a relationship like that. I think, I think sometimes um, what happens because of, because of, I was talking about you're in that bubble, mm -hmm. you know, that kind yeah. of warm, fuzzy, bubble where we want everything to mean great things right we yeah. we know what we're looking for and we try to find everything they do to be positive and good and right that i mean everything yeah right? <laughs> and that's why like when i would go into the high schools or the colleges and talk about healthy relationships i would also focus in on jealousy mm -hmm. because a lot of times like oh jealousy is kind of cute well they're just it is not right that is a huge red flag right now let me be clear. We are, we all are, have human nature and we're all jealous. Right. Feeling jealousy is not a bad thing. It's what we do with our jealousy. That's a bad thing. It's the same thing with anger. Feeling anger is not the bad thing. It's what we do with it to impede on somebody else's uh, authenticity and their mm -hmm. life 
that causes the problem. So my feeling jealous isn't the issue, but if my feeling jealous stops you from being with your friends or going out for sports or going out with your friends or going whatever, then that's crossing that line from me. And really it's from my own insecurities, right? Yeah, that's right. where that comes from. Yep. Um, and again, it's not the feeling of it that causes the problem. It's what we do with it to somebody else where it crosses over from being an emotion mm -hmm. to abusive behaviors. Right. But I think people think it's so normal to be extremely jealous. Like, well, I don't want you to talk to this person. When you're not, people mm -hmm. are like, do you even care about me? Yes, I do. But you're a free person to do what you want to do with your life. Mm -hmm. You should Absolutely. be. It comes yeah. back to, I think, now to be very clear, men, straight or non-binary individuals and all LGBTQ individuals, trans individuals, everyone is a victim of abuse. Stereotypically and historically, those who have disclosed are more often women in relationships with men. Right. And so we also face a sexist version of relationships where women need to respond and kind of obey the man mm -hmm. in that relationship. They need to be like, well, he should make the decision for our household mm -hmm. or I should probably not do that. And it's losing and taking away a woman's individuality. Right. So they do become more dependent. So for a long time and still today, there's a lot of societal pressures, particularly on women in hetero relationships that they still need to be like subservient to that man, which may sound extreme to some people, but it is, more prevalent once oh, you start is, yeah. once you become aware that it is out there it's yeah. really hard to not notice and i think it's really similar in lgbtq relationships if you weren't accepted in your family mm -hmm. as well and you discover this relationship that oh they're finally accepting me but they're also abusive right suddenly what what do you know what do you trust um we tend to make excuses i mm -hmm. mean regardless of our orientation or anything else we tend to we tend to make excuses for those people that we that we care about. We think, well, it's not that bad. And especially like um, Cassie was saying, if it's a generational issue, right? Mm -hmm. So if we have somebody who grew up in an abusive relationship and then goes into their adult teen or adult relationships, um, what they're going to experience, and I'll have to backtrack a little bit on this to explain it, but what they're going to experience in their adult relationship won't compare to what they felt as a child because the, this is the way I explain it when I'm doing my trainings. And so when we experience domestic violence as a child, it's kind of like we're a raw wound, right? Everything is um, overwhelming. Everything is very painful, terrifying, those things. And, and then when we get to be a teenager, we get kind of scarred over, we get a little rough when we've experienced abuse, whichever kind that is sexual abuse, domestic abuse, neglect, um, we tend to get a little rough as we are going through this complex uh, uh, chronic abuse of years and years starting at a young age. And so we get a little scarred over and we get rough and then and we build up walls so that things don't hurt us anymore. Mm -hmm. And so our partners, when they do things to us that are really abusive, we're like, that's nothing. You should have, you should have seen what, what my dad did or what my mom did. Right. So we downplay and we make excuses for our partner, um, especially if we, uh, we experience it as a child. 
There's always a lot of red flags to look for, I think, in any relationship. But I think it's important, again, to remember that it is not your fault that you're in an abusive relationship. If you are with a partner who's using abusive behaviors, no matter how smart, no matter how much you know about power and control, you still may be manipulated by this person because that is exactly what they are best at. They are so good at being manipulative and controlling that you don't notice it. It's really hard. It's even for people who have been a domestic violence advocate have still ended up in relationships with someone using abusive behavior. So it's important to remember this is not your fault. It is not your fault. This is what they're good at. Mm -hmm. And if you can share these experiences with those around you and keep your loved ones involved in your life, you have a better chance of being helped in recognizing those signs instead of just being all on you. I think that's a really good point because so many people think it's just only certain people fall into these situations and you had to be stupid to get in this situation. You had to be stupid not to leave the first time you saw something go wrong. They don't understand. It's a whole system of control. Absolutely. And it can start. And again, if both of your families may have also had generational violence in them and you literally know nothing else. Mm -hmm. So you don't really see why it's, so bad well this is what my parents are like this is what his or her or their parents are like yeah so i guess this is just what relationships are like well they don't recognize it as abuse right they recognize it as well this is, this is life right this is kind of how life goes yeah and so they don't recognize it until we educate them which is why you know i think that intervention and prevention is is the way that we need to really, I mean, we always need the services, but we have to do more as far as intervention and prevention, because um, the more people we educate, even if it isn't the the victims necessarily, if it's everybody around the victims, Mm -hmm. um, because if I can help you by doing a training or something better recognize what it really is. Yeah. Better. Um, feel more confident about responding to somebody, knowing what to say. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people are like, oh, I, don't want, I don't know what to say. So they just walk away right. and say nothing. Um, so know how to navigate that conversation. And then know where to refer. Because yeah. knowing, knowing what and where Harbor House is, is a far cry from really knowing what our programs are. We have so, so, so many different services that we provide. The community has no idea. They don't, because I didn't know. I yeah. thought, you know, if people are in an abusive situation, you have an emergency, and then you can go to Harbor House. Yeah. But no. one of my friends was saying, well, they have groups, and you can just go there and talk and listen. And I was like, really? I had no idea. And we have so many community connections yeah. mm-hmm. that we can help with so many other things than than just... And again, we you know, we try really hard to get away from the fact that, yes, we are a very large shelter. Right. right. We have, yeah. we are a large shelter and it is, we, we do it really well. You really do. But we are so, so much more than that shelter. Our services are so far reaching and we have so many connections. We have an amazing community. Yeah. Um, and, and we are interconnected with so many that, and we work together. And so, you know, people could come in our door and and think, well, I need to talk about this and to end up we can end up opening doors and making phone calls and helping with so many other things 
um, that can actually help them. Because again, domestic violence affects every aspect of your life. Yeah. And I think people never think about that part of it. It's always the physical abuse and getting away from the physical abuse is what people think about when they think about domestic violence. Right. Right. And it's so much more. And it's, Helping, having people around you who are educated also helps dilute the shame you feel. Because so many victims feel it's their fault, they shouldn't have done this, kind of like we were talking before. They take responsibility for being still in that relationship or not wanting to end the relationship because they do love that person and they have maybe they have kids with that person. And so they're tied to them no matter what the rest mm-hmm. of their lives. And so having people around them being non-judgmental and saying, it's okay to talk about this. It's okay to ask for help is the biggest thing anyone can do because that shame is powerful Mm -hmm. and it really prevents a lot of people from asking about it or going to see resources or even Googling Harbor House. And so it's really important that you're non-judgmental and you talk about it openly in your group of friends, your family. It's everywhere. Yeah. But we also help family and friends. So, like, you don't have to be a victim to call domestic, to call Harper House. Right. You can be a friend, a parent, a a boss, a coworker, a neighbor. I mean, it, it, whoever calls needing services is a crisis call Mm -hmm. to us. It doesn't matter. I mean, I've had a parent from Minnesota whose daughter's living in Appleton call me from Minnesota wanting to know what they can do and how they can help. Um, and that was a crisis call. And right. that's how I, you know, that's how we respond to, to any phone call. So it doesn't have to be the person. And the other thing is to, with family and friends, is to just be really, it's really important not to judge or to give ultimatums. Because yes, the I ultimatum... all the time. Yeah, yeah. It's really not a choice. When they're threatening your children's lives and your family saying, if you don't leave, but your partner is threatening your children's lives, if you, if you leave, mm-hmm. that's not, that's not an option. Right. 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 Or at least there's no good option there. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes people so, don't take that seriously though, either. Correct. If you right. call your family and say, well, I'm afraid he'll kill me and the kids. I can't leave. Oh, they they they'll laugh never do off. that. Yeah. yeah. But they don't see what happens at home. They don't see the true danger. They don't know the intricacies of the relationship, nor do they want to admit it. Because that is a very terrifying thing to admit, that your loved one is in that much danger. Right. And denial is just as powerful as shame. And so we have to ultimatum. Mm -hmm. We cannot stress enough that ultimatums are not helpful. Yes, you need to protect yourself. Right. And set boundaries for yourself. However, if you do believe someone is in danger, you need to make sure that you can at least let them know that you are a safe space that you can connect them you shouldn't take that on all yourself because that's not healthy for you either right but you need to be able to at least say hey you can do this or hey you can call harbor house or hey you can do this whatever it is absolutely or i'll be there if and when yes you are ready Right. Yeah. Right. There's no time limit. I've definitely been that friend before. Mm -hmm. I fully support you if you ever want to leave or if you want to talk. Yeah. I'm Mm -hmm. not going to show up and say, I love this relationship, but I love you and I'm here for you. Absolutely. No matter what you decide to do. And hopefully the day comes that you decide to leave. 
one of the things that I often tell family and friends is to keep the keep your conversations with that person about them yeah. and not their partner. Okay. If they want to talk about the partner, you listen, mm-hmm. but we don't jump on. Right. right. Even though our emotions are like yeah. wanting to like jump out of our skin. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what we want to do is stay focused on that person, mm-hmm. their environment, what matters most to them. Right. Even if it is that relationship. Yeah. Right. Just, you don't have to like it, but we have to, we have to respect that, that that's where they feel they need to do right now. Because I'll tell you what, there are times when staying saves their lives. Right. So in that moment, it's important that you at least respect that part. You don't got to like it. Right. But, you know, it's like when I used to work with kids, you don't necessarily have to like what the parent is doing, but you love the parent. Right. And I think so. sometimes, too, if the partner is reading the conversation, if you're messaging, and you don't say anything bad about them, then you're the one friend they're allowed to still talk to. You bet. Ooh. Absolutely. Wow. That's a huge point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I've been there before. Like, oh, well, you can still talk to her. She's the only one that doesn't bash me. Yeah. Like, right. I do it in my mind. Right. <laughs> it, it is. Yes. Or you can call us. Right. Yeah. Right. Tell me, like, you need to yell or you need to, you know, you can. There are places for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's just not anywhere near, and honestly, not to that person. Right. Mm-hmm. Because we're putting them, what happens most most often than not is once we, once we start saying negative things about the partner, they're going to defend. Yeah. They're going right. to put up a wall and they're going to be like, oh, no, 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 I've done this and I've done this. Well, mm-hmm. the last thing we want to do to a victim of domestic violence is is make them feel like they have to defend the person who's who's doing this. So we don't ever want to be that person. And then we'll always be that safe option if and when they're ready. Um, So it is really important to, to not, to not go there. Yeah. You know, listen, but keep it about them. Keep it about their health, their safety, find that connection with them and stick there. That's really good advice. Um, So how do you, what are the different difficulties that victims experience going through the legal system? I feel like a lot of people don't really think about that and the different channels that they have to go through when they're in this type of situation. Um, do you guys experience that a lot? Yes, all the time. Um, you know, the legal system is incredibly complicated. Mm-hmm. If you've never been in it and you're suddenly thrust into it, um, it's complicated for any kind of case. Domestic violence can be in multiple courts at the same time. You could be in criminal court. You can be in civil court. You can be in family court. You have to go to probation hearing, restraining orders. There's so many different layers of that. And there's appeals and there's waiting periods were still backlogged from COVID when things were shut down as well. And so you may, you know, we've had murder trials of domestic violence victims take three years to take place. So it's, we have two legal advocates, um, staff, and most of our advocates are also trained within the legal system because there is just so many intricacies and it's so hard to do on your own. And when you've been through trauma and you're still living in that crisis, it's really hard to be like, I have to fill out this 15 page document to say how I was a victim. No one wants to do that. I don't want to tell my story 15 different times to five different detectives and two other victim witnesses and whatever the case may be. It's really overwhelming. And our advocates, I think that's one of the best things we offer um, is the support from that. Like here's the, the actual paperwork you need. Here's how we can fill this out. 
here's where you go. If you don't speak English, here's what we can do to help with that. And here's how we can help you with those forms, whatever the case may be for that. You know, especially when it comes to custody and Mm -hmm. that is that can go on for a very long time. Wisconsin mm-hmm. is a no-fault state, and so it can be extremely difficult to prove, quote-unquote, what kind of abuse is in the household. Because maybe your partner didn't ab- physically abuse your children. Right. That does not mean they're safe mm-hmm. with that person. And that does not mean those children aren't going to also then learn abusive behaviors from that parent. But proving that in court is extremely difficult. And so getting support and helping pay for attorneys and advocating in the court system it depends on the judge it depends on yeah. the county it depends on all of that too some more education we can do in the legal system um is also better and you know police are only given so much training at a time and so reminding them you know we've got some good relationships but they're again if you're on you know hour 12 of your shift and you just don't want to deal with this person that can cause some issues as well because then we lose trust yeah. And that, and we don't want to go um, right. to the system to get help. And we feel like we can't go to right. the system to get help. So it's understanding and recognizing the issues in our system and sharing that with our clients and also saying, here's how we can try and navigate through it together. Right. To ensure that your rights are still being hopefully met. Well, because if people do have an incident and they call the police and let's say somebody does get arrested and then they bond out in the morning. Then they're back at your house. The morning? Yeah. Maybe in the morning. Maybe hour. an hour later. They're, yeah. I, I will tell depending you. Depending on what they're charged with, I guess. Many times <laughs> they post their bond before they see a cell. Yeah. We will get so, a release call before we get an arrest call. That's generally. Crazy. You can, on a first offense, Yeah, 150 bucks. You're out. You turn mm. around and you're out the door. And then where does that leave the victim? I think people don't think about that when they're like, well, you can call the police. But what does that do? Right. Well, there's supposed to be no contact. There's supposed to be, yeah. But Um, but, how effective are those in your experience? You know, there are are seriously, there are just so many, so many layers to that. And I, you know, I spent the first 10 years of my career at Harbor House working with kids. Mm -hmm. I spent the second, you know, eight, nine years now because um, I had one where I did both, um, training, training professionals, training uh, other service providers, um, and police officers are were some of them, right, yeah. in the medical. And so we, we absolutely, and it's not that they don't want the training, right. um, but... It, it is, there's so many, so many layers to it because if you have a house where the police have been there 10 times, mm-hmm. right, they get frustrated. Yeah. Now, when I would sit down with officers and, and ask them, what's your most frustrated, or what frustrates you most about domestic violence, that was the number one thing. And in, in retrospect, you can't, I can understand that. Yeah. Right? But then it's our job then to make sure that they understand why, why they go back 10 times, right? right. And why they keep getting called. And then we have, you know, the victim who knows because they aren't really ready to make a decision yet on what to do, right? We're in crisis. And um, in the moment says, yeah, they did this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. And then the next day or a week later recants and says, no, that's not really what happened. I did it, right? Yeah. It, It just adds layer after layer after layer after layer. 
And that's just the, the criminal part. And that, and that's the number one thing to, to please anybody who's listening understand that the two parts of this issue, not leaving an abusive relationship is not a crime. No. Committing an act of domestic violence is a crime. Yep. Yes. Right? It is a crime. Yes. And, but when we arrest them and they pay $150 and walk right back out the door. Yeah. Number one, what does it send to them? And number two, what does it send to the victim? Mm-hmm. What message right. do those, does that send? So, but that's a whole nother issue. Well, and we have an issue often as well as where we have a lot of victims that are arrested. So Wisconsin has a mandatory arrest law. So if there yeah. is a domestic violence incident and you are called to the home, someone needs to be arrested. Now, if you are the victim or should be arrested, Thank you. (laughs) If you are the victim and you are screaming because you were in trauma and crying Mm, and your partner's like, that's just how they are. They're just crazy. They just lost their minds. Just get them out of here. You have no opportunity to say what happened. Maybe you're too afraid to press charges and you don't want to. And now your partner's getting arrested and now you're in way more danger than you were an hour ago. A lot of times defense wounds show up way before attack wounds Strangling is a very common, strangling and choking is a very common physical abuse that domestic abuse, strangling, thank you, use. (laughs) But those injuries do not show up for a while. Right. Whereas if I'm scratching a face, they'll show up right away. Yeah. Right. Yep. So again, we'll get you arrested. And that's going to get you arrested. And you have just almost died. And now you're Mm -hmm. being arrested as a victim. Mm -hmm. And that... And now the cop is trying to do their best judgment, use their best judgment in the situation. They won't have all the information. Mm -hmm. They have to make a call. They're not always going to make the right call. That's impossible. And so, but then you suddenly no longer are going to call the police ever again. Yeah. Right. And the abuser is going to be calm and going along with it. Like they're just a terrible person. And that goes back to the legal system. Let's make sure they go to jail. Mm-hmm. They're calm. Yeah. They're calm. Gotta, and look at yeah. what I got to deal with. Yeah. 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 And yeah. then suddenly the victim has a domestic violence charge on their file. Yeah. And right. so then they're taken less seriously in court when yeah. they're like, hey, I was actually abused for 10 years. Oh, but you were arrested for it. So washing my hands of this case. But, so that can happen then too. Again, there's, it's like Tracy's saying, there's so many layers and it gets so complicated. But you didn't add kids yet. Right. Yeah. That's and then just you have to keep going to court to see them. If you do decide to go with the charges, you have to go to court and see them. If mm-hmm. you have kids, they're going to make sure you're in court every other week every to other fight week. about the kids. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. Fight about the kids. Yeah. You have to relive your trauma over and over again. You have to have. And the fear of losing them. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. So. Well, because she's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Right. Or he. Or he. Yeah. 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 It's, it's just a hornet's nest. Yeah. yeah. And then people keeps... wonder why people stay stuck in the situation. Yeah. Because... Yeah. It's, it is one of the hardest things to get out of because it's in, in, and I, I'm going off a little bit here, but in that relationship, because the person who uses abusive behaviors will shift the kind of shift what they're doing so fast. So like everything will be okay. And then things, you have a lot of tension and then you'll have a huge explosion. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, you shift into kind of that honeymoon phase where they, they, like somebody gets arrested and then they want you to, you know, say nothing happened or they, or they just want you back. Right. Because mm-hmm. 99%, 101% yeah. want you back. Right. In, in these, because it's about power and control. It's about you being mine. Right. Right. Um, 
And so then they're all nice again. And then you get into this kind of tension where all the stuff starts happening, right? And then you have another explosion. And the thing is, is that once, once, so like you get done with an explosion, you're like, okay, I'm done. And then they shift you into the, I'm really sorry, it'll never happen again. And they're crying and they're pleading and I'll go to counseling and we'll do this and this won't happen again. And please be please, right? And, and, um, and then you, you go, okay, and you kind of stick and, and then you start shifting and be, you don't even realize it until you're back up to that really high, like really bad time, right? Right mm. before the, the explosion. And, and then you're like, okay, you know, last time I was here, I was leaving, but then there's a huge explosion and then you're completely traumatized and overwhelmed Confused. and can't make, right. And, and literally your brain can't calm down enough to, to make those decisions. Yeah. Right. And then, and then they swing you back down and they just keep swinging you. As soon as you start thinking, okay, I'm done, they're going to swing you again into another thing. And they're going to be like, wait a minute, last time I was here, I was leaving. And then they're going to swing you. And it just, it's, it is one of the absolute most difficult things to break out of because every time you think you got your, your feet on the ground, they pull the rug out from under you and spin you into another another uh, emotional roller coaster. And some of it is some of the most frightening and horrific. And mm. some of it is the most wonderful, wonderful, right? Where you're being treated. And the thing is, if you go back to what Cassie said before and the fact that the relationship didn't start out that way, you always know that the person has potential to be good. Right. Yeah. And we grasp onto good. I always tell people when I was doing my trainings, it's like even in our everyday life, when we're really struggling with something like grief, like we lost, you know, somebody, somebody died and we all get together. What do we do? We talk about the good times. Right. We grasp onto yeah. the good times to get us through that struggle. Mm-hmm. I've, I've been Guess. doing that with baseball all my life. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I Me get too, it. Right? <laughs> so, but we grasp onto that to get us through that struggle. Well, that is what domestic violence victims do. Yeah. They grasp onto those good moments. And you have to remember that even in between the bad ones, there's good ones. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. It's a, it's a ebb and weave. Yeah. Cause mm-hmm. it goes bad all the time. It's Nobody not would want to be there. Nobody would. So, no, right. But yeah. it isn't. And then yeah. when those really bad moments happen, we grasp onto the good to help us get through that struggle. Right. And then once we do, we go into this nice, this where they're nice to us again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we know there's potential for good. It is just such an, it's such a horrible, horrible hornet's nest to try to get out of. Yeah. Um. What do you notice or what have you observed when people are trying to go through the immigration process or they're not necessarily having legal status? Yeah. They're undocumented. I, I will tell you that most don't come in. They don't come at all. We will get calls from, I remember very specifically taking a call from a police officer saying, you have to help me convince this person to go to the hospital. Her partner had thrown acid in her face. Oh, my God. Um, and she could lose her sight if she didn't go, but she was undocumented and he burned her green card. She oh. had nothing. And so he's like, we got to do it. And like, we will pay for it. 
We will cover it for you. We will not let ICE, like we will protect you and we can do that because domestic violence agencies can follow a state statute of confidentiality. Mm -hmm. The cop that called me about that person, he calls me again. I can say, I don't know who you're talking about. I cannot confirm or deny that we are working with this person. And I think that is extremely important for anyone listening to know, particularly if your immigration status is being held against you. We do not have to tell anyone and cannot tell anyone that we are working with you. We can help you with your hospital bills and get that taken care of. Our most important issue is your safety. We need to make sure that you feel safe. We have seen, we have a couple of people, we have several bilingual staff, both Hmong and Spanish. And we also have one that is particularly versed in immigration paperwork. We get a lot of um, people who are kind of convinced to come here and then we'll get married and you'll be a citizen. And then suddenly Mm. get here and that story changes. Paper, we get birth certificates, immigration papers, and green cards are set on fire all the time. People will or burn that traffic. so they have no, or they've been trafficked, they, they have no that. access to it. Yeah. They don't know where they were born. They have no idea. You know, we have people who will hold, they won't sign that paperwork if you leave, or they'll testify against you if you leave, or they'll mm-hmm. call ICE if you leave. So that's a whole other layer of control that <sighs> is incredibly scary. Yeah. Um, and it again affects every part of your life in that way as well. And trafficking offers not only within the legal system and immigration system that offers up a whole other kind of host of issues and complexities to deal with for clients. And it's incredibly overwhelming. And I'm not sure people realize how much of that actually goes on in our community. Oh, it's extremely common. (laughs) Yeah. It's extremely common. Um, We are getting people trafficked. We do, you know, we don't, specialize in trafficking victims. Um, but we do work with victims of trafficking, obviously. And right. there is quite a huge amount of people being trafficked in this country. We've seen people in our own city be trafficked. We've seen people mm-hmm. come from other states who had been trafficked for so long and they ended up here. We don't know. You know, we've seen people with who are given traumatic brain injury from abuse they felt and were being trafficked and they had no idea that they had a life before that. Oh, wow. We have people who are trafficked by family members in this community, mm-hmm. and they don't know they're being trafficked because why would my mom do that to me? And that's all they know. And that's all they know. Trafficking, it just adds a whole other layer of complication because you may not know that you're trafficked. Mm-hmm. You may have a web that you don't have no idea even where to begin to get out of, and maybe you can't even stay in this state because of that issue. So it just adds a lot a lot to that and it's another thing that can be really difficult to prove in court unfortunately because if you don't realize you're being trafficked and let's say you're willingly working on a farm for two dollars an hour and someone is holding your immigration papers hostage for that that is trafficking you're being trafficked but what are you supposed to do they have your papers you only have two dollars an hour to live off of where does that leave you how do you prove how do you go to court and say, I agreed to this and this is wrong when that person has the money and resources to defend themselves and you have nothing? If you're being sex trafficked and you technically willingly accept it, maybe you are willingly in sex work mm-hmm. and you started out as trafficked, but you didn't know, you know, how do you then prove that one person can be like, well, she wanted to do it. Yeah. Case is over. So there's a whole other Because there are people who do want to do sex work and we support that. But for those who are trafficked, they look like they do, but they may not know that they are. 
And right. so it just, it's, that is a very complicated thing to prove. And I think a lot of people want, I've heard from a lot of funders in the area, we need to spend more time on trafficking, but that's a bigger issue, I think, and a bigger systematic mm-hmm. issue yeah. of we need to change how we look at it before we can right. truly address it. I know there's some groups in Milwaukee that are working with women that were in sex work involuntarily so they can get their charges off of their record, make sure you're not paying fines because you were being trafficked. Now you were being trafficked and now you have $1,500 in court costs that you have to pay Mm -hmm. and no job skills. And where does the judge think you're getting the money from? Correct. I, you know, not that many years ago, we actually had a task force, sex driving task force here in Appleton, right? Yeah. And Harbor House was part of that. I was, I was one of them, uh, one of the, one of the staff people who was part of that. And part of my job was going out into the middle schools in seventh grade. I worked with Stuffersville Crisis Center Mm -hmm. and teamed up with them. And we went into middle schools and did an, a classroom length training. Um, and, the reason we did that is because the recruitment age is 12 to 14 years old. Yeah. That's when that's that's where they start and and a really important thing I think everybody should know is that the Fox Valley is the third highest hotspot for sex trafficking in the state of Wisconsin. Yeah. So, it does happen here and, and you know when I would do my trainings one of the things I would say is one of the things that makes us such an amazingly rich community and I mean that by everything that's here Mm -hmm. um all the festivals and the Packer games and the yeah right and the rock fest and yeah all right country right that's business for a sex trafficker yep so when we bring all that in and I'm not saying we shouldn't have those things because it's what makes part of what makes our community awesome yeah but we also have to understand that when we have mile music yeah that's business for mm-hmm. sex trafficking. Yeah. And there's a route that they take mm-hmm. that comes up from southern uh, Wisconsin up through here, up through Green mm-hmm. Bay, over to, Min- over to Minneapolis, Minnesota, and then back down to Madison mm-hmm. and over. And mm-hmm. they will take people from the rest of the state on that route. That doesn't mean trafficking victims only come from southern Wisconsin. Right. They do definitely no, come they from keep this them area. They just they, keep yeah. them moving so then they don't know. They recruit everywhere. Yes. So no matter yes. where they go, they recruit here, they recruit everywhere they go. So mm-hmm. every stop they go. But they only keep them here for a certain amount of time. Right. So there's less chance of them being caught. And I think so it's... then Im- they move them on. Yeah, I think an important thing, too, is we've had sex trafficking victims who have been locked in a house... That is a thing that happens. However, there are also sex trafficking victims who are allowed to quote unquote live a life. They might be going, they might be going to sixth grade every day. They might be going to school every day. And then at night they're working. It depends on the environment that they're in. It depends on who has trafficked them. It depends on if they want to stay, like if you're in an area that you are making really great money off of, why would you want to move this victim? So then you integrate them into life. And here we are. I can tell you that we just based on my experience, um, we have had middle schoolers who were sex trafficked right here in Appleton. Yeah. So. Um, that makes me sick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Me too. So let's say Fallon and I are walking out in the world of, you know, the Fox Valley. And what would you say would be something that we should look out for as just people that are somewhat aware, but like don't really know the ins and outs of trafficking? Sure. Um, what would you say would be 
big indicators or even small indicators of that. Mm-hmm. Well, like you, you're not going to see what most, you know, most people think um, you're going to see. And I'm not saying you'll never see it as people on the corner and stuff like that, because it's usually done by phone now, mm-hmm. right? It's done electronically. It's yeah, done by it's social websites. media and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But what, you know, one of the things that we would talk about and certainly what I talk about with my children, um, like uh, my children don't get to go alone to the mall on Friday mm-hmm. and Saturday nights. Yeah. Um, and uh, if you have kids that are in school and all of a sudden they have an extra phone, they're wearing mm-hmm. different clothes, mm-hmm. they're wearing different jewelry, their, their, their um, personality changes, they start not you know, in sports or they're not in the band or they're not doing the things that, you know, they love to do. Like when their personality drastically changes, their look changes. Yeah. Um, the two phones is a big one. Um, that those are things to really pay attention to, whether you're a parent or a friend or whatever, um, is really, really paying attention to those, those big changes. Some of them are subtle. Some of them will be, there's a kid who used to be an A student. Now they fall asleep in class every morning. Mm. Right. So, um, and it's, and unfortunately, a lot of times what happens with the kids is they get in trouble Yeah. when what they really need is, is a conversation. They need that, they need that person who's going to notice and go, you know, come on, tell me what, you know, what's going on. And again, it, it layers deeper when, when it goes back to something that Cassie said, which is if it's within your family or if it's somebody that you care about, what is a very kind of consistent thing is a little bit older kid befriends Mm -hmm. a little bit younger kid takes them out spends money on them right we're out at the mall they're buying them meals and they're going to look for vulnerable kids they're going to look for kids who have mental health issues who hate being at home who and unfortunately those are kids who grew up in domestic violence or sexual assault right right we know that growing up in a home where there's domestic violence sexual assault or neglect it it almost automatically puts you at a higher risk level for more bad things to happen because you're more vulnerable to these people who prey on you Mm -hmm. for these things and no one's going to notice at home if they're not paying attention to you to begin with correct it feeds into that cycle of violence like we've been talking Mm -hmm. about in that generational cycle and we recently merged with the sexual assault crisis center so we're now offering sexual violence services as well and i think something we've talked about recently is working with clients who realized that they themselves sexually abused someone and they knew that they could, but they only did that because that's how they were sexually abused as a child. And they, again, do not want to be doing, using those behaviors. They know what it did to themselves. Mm -hmm. They don't want to do that, but that is the, it just, you know, so there's again, a lot more complexities to those abusive behaviors too, especially when it comes to sexual assault. That's a lot to deal with as a parent. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I can imagine. My kids wonder why I'm a helicopter mom. Uh, (laughs) You will will never be a victim because I know where you are every second of every day. My son was trained on everything by 12. Like everything. I I had him go through the sex trafficking training, healthy relationships, domestic violence, everything. I love that people go into the schools and teach healthy dating relationships in middle school. That is so great. We actually start at kindergarten. We have programs. K healthy. through twelve. Now, <laughs> <laughs> should be clear. It's age appropriate. You know, yeah. 
it's but like what is a bully um, oh, yeah right. like a start of what does it feel like to be scared yeah exactly. an ally how to be a good ally how to be an ally start start with that and and what do we do if we're afraid at home yep right oh, that's good. so start out with that and mm-hmm. then about every two to three years the the curriculum changes a little bit so it's more age appropriate by but by the age of you know seventh grade we have to talk about dating yeah yep. Because they're dating, yeah, yeah by they really sixth are. and seventh grade. We which don't is, want them to, but they are, <laughs> right? I know, and so it's like it, we they do need to know what a healthy yeah. relationship looks like. Because if we don't, yeah. then they mirror either their peers, which is really not a good idea, <laughs> right? Um, or you know, uh, unfortunately, they mirror the what they grew up in, yeah. Right. And for some, that's awesome, right? Yeah. Um, but for others, it is really bad. Yeah. You know, and that's the same thing with like the LGBTQ community, because a lot of times in their homes, they don't even think to mirror their parents because they don't, they're not, they're not the same as their parents. Right. So they don't even know that that, that if it is healthy, mm-hmm. that that's an option for them mm-hmm. because oh, they're that's a really perceived point. to be yeah. different and their relationships aren't as important and they aren't as authentic. That's and so, so sad. It is. It um, is. It really is. But that's. That's why the more of this, yeah, right? yeah, mm-hmm. which is awesome that you're doing this. The more education and the more that we can get out and talk um, and just enlighten people about all this kind of stuff, the better, the better we'll yeah. be. I talk to my kids about everything nonstop and they think it's really annoying, but then I'll hear them say like, well, this person is in a really unhealthy relationship yeah. and it's really toxic for their life. Yeah. Good for you. See, they're you great. learned that. Jo- every once in a while, I'm like, I, I did something wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Is like, I don't like the way she treats him. Yeah. She's controlling. I'm like, okay. She's I 14. She recognizes mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's That's awesome. My daughter will say, she's seeking attention from too many boys. And I think that she has some insecurities going on <laughs> and she needs to talk to someone. That's awesome. And wow. Stop Her kids it are boys. great. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, and I think that's that's the biggest thing a parent particularly can do is talk about things that are uncomfortable. No one wants to have those conversations with their kids, but if you don't, they're at risk. Mm -hmm. And the more you can talk to them about that, it doesn't mean we think the world is a terrible, ugly place with no good people. It means this is how we help ourselves and other people avoid that part of the world. And we we have to talk to children about it. We have to. Exactly. Are there any teachable moments or circumstances you'd like to share with us and our listeners about specific domestic violence experiences you have encountered? Anything that just jumps out at you that you're like, that's a great thing to share? Uh, well, we could probably talk for about six hours. <laughs> uh, so, so could we. <laughs> right. So I think there's one thing that I've noticed maybe more recently than in the past is we've had a lot of, we've always had victims of every age. Mm-hmm. Domestic violence and sexual assault affect people from, I think we've had people at nine months old who were sexually assaulted to 99 years old. And that is absolutely, unfortunately true. It doesn't right. matter if you make six figures a year or if you are unemployed and on the street, you are still at risk of that. So we work with all types of people. I think something that I have seen more recently, however, is people who have been married for 50 plus years are now leaving mm. a really, that marriage for the first time because it's when they first got married, it's, it was 
typical marriage to you don't work, you don't do this, you have to take care of the house, they control everything. And that might have worked for a while. Mm -hmm. And they were, as one woman, I think she was 73, it was like, well, that's, it wasn't that bad. I didn't think it was that bad. I just thought that's how it was. It wasn't anything I couldn't handle. And that is so hard to hear, but that is exactly how we are kind of taught to respond. But then Mm -hmm. COVID hit and suddenly the physical violence started for the first time in their 70s, threatening her life for the first time in their 70s. It is never too late to go and get help. It is never too late. And I think that's a big thing. It's never too early either to get help from someone. If you're worried about your parent being in an abusive relationship, if you're worrying about your sibling, your aunt, your friend, whatever it is, it is never too early or too late to call and ask to see what can I do? How can I support someone? I think this is happening. Am I crazy? 99% of the time, you're not crazy. Your gut is almost always right. And if your gut is telling you that something is off, then something is off. We have never had a gut feeling that hasn't shown to be true over time. So it's trust your gut. Listen to your gut. It's never too early. It's never too late. Yeah. I mean, and, and everything's confidential. So if you call our crisis line, you don't have to tell us who you are. We can have a two-hour conversation with you and not know who you are. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, and that's, that's good okay. for people to know, too. Yeah. yeah. And everything else is confidential, too. We're bound by the confidentiality law, which mm-hmm. means if you if you would bring her in, and then she would, <clears throat> we'd bring her in and, and work with her, and you'd come back a little bit later, like, hey, I'm just coming to check on her. I'd be like, I'm sorry, I can't confirm or deny. And you'd be like, Tracy, I shook your hand. <laughs> and I'd be like... I know I'm sorry, but I can't confirm mm-hmm. or deny. So Which unless right. she signs a release of information so that I can share information with you, I can't share information with Correct. you. Correct. Correct. And sorry, because I'm going to talk about the abuse later in life now. Oh, yeah. Hold on. <laughs> just a, just a, yep. one other thing. It's, it's definitely that. we Everything that we offer is 100% free. I think that is also extremely important to remember. Everything that we offer with sexual assault, domestic abuse, legal services, economic abuse, shelter, food, clothes, whatever the case may be, talking on the phone or crisis line, everything is 100% free and 100% confidential. It does not matter the situation. It will always be free. It will always be confidential. So if if that's the only thing you take away from this, that's amazing because know that you will be safe we try and make a safety plan with anyone who calls ever. Even if you're calling on behalf, again, of a sibling or something, mm-hmm. we will make sure you feel you have the tools so you feel safe and you can try to help them feel safe. Because if you're not ready to do anything beyond that, at least we can give you a tool to find some safety. Okay, now you can talk about it. <laughs> well, I'm just going off of um, what Cassie was talking about with older, <clears throat> with older victims. Um, you know, I started my career working with children and then in 2019, uh, Wisconsin actually got a grant for working with um, abuse later in life victims. And so I was fortunate to, to be selected as one of the trainers for that also. And we've been doing a two, two and a half year um, training with police officers and other service providers trying to help everybody identif- better identify abuse later in life for older um, victims. And one of the interesting things that I learned is that between, I think, uh, 2011 and 2030, we have 10,000 people a day turning 65 
in our country. And so, but we have, we do not have many direct services for between 55 and 65. So Mm -hmm. once we're older, we have services and our programs a lot, focus a lot of our services on, you know, 50 and under. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot. And if you take the statistics, right, which is one in three, one in four women and one in seven or one in nine men, with who experience domestic violence, we are missing a lot of people and a right. lot of families um, who either are too afraid, too shamed, or don't know how to reach out to get help. Um, but there is has been an initiative for a couple of years now to really put a lot of focus on our older population to try to help them, um, to help them better recognize, to help, and then to help all the services that provide them. Uh, that are provided to them also better recognize and mm-hmm. respond to domestic and, and sexual assault. And there's such a thing as child abusing a parent. Yep. It's not just parent-child abuse. Yep. And we're yeah. seeing that more and more with there's, abuse. There's almost life. always two things involved in abuse later in life. One is greed mm-hmm. and one is um, power control. So I hadn't even thought about the parents mm-hmm. abusing or the child children. abusing the parent. Or yeah. grandchildren abusing the grandparent. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's, you know, we see it with people who get traumatic brain injuries in a domestic violence relationship or those who may have other physical abilities that are different than other people. They're taken advantage of in a way that they can't control either because maybe they physically cannot walk or physically cannot Mm -hmm. grab this thing on their own. And so they're targets for people in a different way as well because that's something they already have to have help with. And it's the same as you age. There are certain things you can no longer do. And so you do yeah. need to have help with that. And that's a really easy way for people to then take yeah. control over that person. It's like when the police officers or social services go in to investigate, they investigate different things. Mm-hmm. Like they see if mm-hmm. if the person needs a walker, where's the walker? Is mm-hmm. it right next to them or is it in a different room? Oh, um, wow. Who, yeah. who, how do you get your medication? Yeah. Do you still take it yourself or does somebody else give it mm-hmm. to you? Is there food in the refrigerator? You know, um, when's the last time you were you saw a doctor for mm-hmm. like regular checks? There's just this totally different way of investigating um, abuse later in life than than others. That you, get, you just have to pay attention to other things. And I think stereotypically, people assume abuse is happening to women in yes. their twenties and thirties. Yeah, I know we've or had at least under fifty. At least yeah. under fifty. I think I actually yeah. brought. Um, like on Lifetime movies. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. So we actually pulled some numbers. So from last year, just so I could give you some age ranges. So we had, in 2021, we served about 1,300 people. Uh, 300 of those were under the age of 12. And then 60 were teenagers. And then we had, from 18 to 29, we had 226 people. From 30 to 39, 326. 40 and up was almost 400. Oh, wow. And so we have, and we had a couple of people over 80. So it's every yep. age. Right. And it's yep. not just, I think, again, I think it's the young, mm-hmm. newly married or newly yeah. sing, whatever person that people have a very stereotypical of a yep. yeah. low income person who is in a domestic violence relationship. Yeah. And that is not the case. Do those people exist? Of course they do. Does everyone else victims of domestic violence? A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. It's important to remember. 
Do you guys believe that abusers can be rehabilitated? <laughs> well, here's the thing. Let's <laughs> dive into that one. Um, we have to, and I and I'm gonna I'm gonna say, especially now, because we are actually launching a new program that is going to specifically work with people who use abusive behaviors. Now, we've always had, for 30 plus years, we've had um, batter's treatment uh, program that, and, and there are not that many domestic violence programs that actually offer their own. There are usually other programs that do it, like I think Catholic Charities used to do it, and sometimes the county does it, and that sort of thing. And we've always done it. But what we're, what we're going to do is really unhitch ourselves from the system. So um, we used to be very, very kind of entangled with the probation parole and the court systems and, and that sort of thing. And not that we're still not going to be a resource for them, but we're instead of being kind of part of the punishment, we are actually going to try to provide services to people yeah. who use abusive behaviors. They are still family members. Right. Yeah. Other, whether it's the children or the partners still love them. Mm -hmm. And they're also going to move on if they move on yeah, right. to other children yeah. and partners. Right. So I try and I'll just speak for me. I strongly believe that the way to actually kind of catch up to this issue is to start putting some focus on the 50% of the problem that causes 100% of the harm. Yeah. But we have to do that in a way of services. We, it, being a part of the punishment, nobody, there's nobody that's going to take part in that. Right. Well, and right? people don't take it seriously. They'll get through right. it. They're like, so yeah, they whatever, can tell right? their PO they did it or right. tell the Correct. judge that they did right. it. And those are only hitting the people who had a criminal charge. Right. right. And we want to, we want to try to get them before then. Yeah. Right. We yeah. want to, we want to try to get to them before they end up in the court system or right. they end up in jail. Yeah. Um, because again, we also know that a very, very high majority of people who use abusive behaviors grew up in abusive homes. Right. And, and the majority of those people didn't have any intervention. It's really about intervention and then prevention, right? Yeah. Or, mm -hmm. or the other way around, right? And so we, we really want to put a lot of focus on the whole family, on you know, making sure that every you still get your victim services, children's services, but we want to make sure that we're also um, providing services, right. having, you know, someone to meet with, small groups, uh, really focusing on kind of helping them come full circle. Yeah. Right? Because when you grow up thinking you're a bad kid because of bad things happening to you. Mm-hmm. There's got to be some intervention in there right. to help them understand that, that it's not about them being bad. It's about a person, place, thing, or event happening to them that kind of what I call had them kind of take a detour. Right. Mm -hmm. And 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 then helping them try to get back on track so that they can have a better relationship with their children, so they can have a better relationship with their parents, so they can have a better relationship with their current or, or future partners. And so we're just... We're just starting. Hopefully by the beginning of the year, we'll be really launched and going. Mm -hmm. I think that's great because I've worked with a lot of people that have been charged with domestic situations. Yeah. And 
They don't, uh, most of them don't want to be like that. No, they don't. But I think no. that's a huge thing to remember. You know, I remember sitting in a, uh, I was at an orientation for a previous program that worked through the system and someone raised their hand as they going through, what is domestic abuse? What is mm-hmm. this? It was a man who was in maybe his forties. And he said, you know, I got beat up all the time as a kid. Right. You think that's why I do this now? And it was such a profound statement because I think a lot of people are like, well, duh. But really, you don't know what you don't know. And that was a huge moment for him. And that shows that he's like, if I knew how to use any other kind of behavior or I Mm -hmm. knew that there were options, maybe this is not what I wanted. I could have acted differently. And if we're going to put a stop to generational violence as we continually see similar issues, we have to talk to them so those children learn different behaviors. Right. Because the protective parent relationship with a child can get ruined in an abusive relationship as well. And so it's yeah. really important that they get to have that. 100% disclosure is we know some people cannot and will right. not be rehabilitated. That's on them. That's yeah. on them. But yeah. are, there are those people who do not want to exhibit those behaviors that we could help. We could put an end to that family cycle of violence, which is huge. Yeah. yeah. It's absolutely huge. And we will still be offering victim services again, a hundred percent free, hundred percent confidential. And that's in a different building yeah. than where we'll be doing this program to ensure that oh, that's, that's a good point. Separate. Yeah. Not oh, yeah. to have your abuser in the building. Yeah. 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 Not only that though, I think yeah. not having the conflict. Of, yeah. And I mean the emotional conflict, mm-hmm. not right. even for the person using. Yeah. Uh, yep. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. so, um, you know, and a lot of it for me, I learned, you know, because I've worked the kids I worked with are now adults. Yeah. And many of them have gone through the court system. Yeah. And I spent, I think, about eight years working up at the Ottagamie County Jail when they had a juvenile floor. Okay. And I used to go up there and work with girls between the ages of 12 and 17. Mm-hmm. And part of what I learned to do with them was bring them full circle, which is helping them identify the person, place, thing, or event that happened to them that kind of had them take that detour to bad decisions and not being able, being really overwhelmed and sometimes not being able to regulate our emotions, which (laughs) most of us have that issue at times, right? Um, And helping them by connecting those dots, not feel so responsible, not, not responsible, I shouldn't say that, not feel so blamed. Yeah. Right? Like, you still need to be held accountable for your actions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As I told people, if I had to take a two-year-old who was growing up in an abusive home and hold them accountable, everybody gets held accountable in my book. Yeah. Yeah. Because I did that a lot. I worked with, you know, over a couple thousand kids. So everybody, but we need to figure out how to hold people accountable by still providing services. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because they do need to be held accountable. Yes. Absolutely. But... Is there a way to stop it? But a big part of them changing is them recognizing Mm -hmm. the accountability. Right. Right. Not just thinking it's all entitlement, not just thinking that it's okay because this is how I get what I want or get people to do what I want, but actually going, wow, I really hurt the people I love most. Yeah. And I don't want to. Those are the people we're going to be able to help. Yeah. That's going to make a huge difference, I think. For me, it's... I'll talk, speak for me again. For me, it's about the next generation. Yeah. Right? Because if we can help these parents get to a better place, even with their children, 
mm-hmm. right? Have a healthy relationship with their kids, not not be you know be a little bit better co-parent, um, so that their kids grow up with less traumas. Yeah, we've just affected a whole new generation, and it's mm-hmm. gonna and it's gonna show in every way. It's gonna show in our schools. We're not yeah. gonna have as many behavioral issues or mental health issues in our schools mm-hmm. if we can, right? Yeah. So that's the big picture for for yeah. us at Harbor House. Well, and is, it's it's getting at the root that. cause. Yeah. And I think if we really want to end domestic violence and any kind of violence and oppression, yeah. we have to get to the cause. Right now, the DV movement and the sexual assault movement, we've been focusing on victim services. And we, again, will continue to do that 100%. That's we're scooping people out of the river when they fell in. Yeah. How can we stop them from falling in the river in the first place? And that is what this program is going to help do is let's build a bridge over this river. So people stop falling in. We will still get you out. If you do, we will be there to help you with that. But if we can also prevent you from falling into the river in the first place, that's going to be a whole different community and a whole different world. Yeah. So that's part of the, the intervention of the intervention and prevention program that, I'll be managing. So it's, I just think it's going to be good. Yeah. It's the right way to go. Yeah. I agree. I think that'll be great. So for domestic violence awareness month, what can we do as a public to offer support and spread awareness? Well, so for October, (laughs) um, so the color for domestic violence, national color is purple. So Harbor House, about three, four years ago, started an initiative called Purple Porch Project. So what we do is, and I'll give you the website and all the information, is we sell what we call Purple Porch Kits. You can light up your door, your porch, your balcony, whatever kind of area that you have. We have purple light bulbs, purple lights, and signs to bring awareness to domestic violence. They're available for sale on our website. You can order them right there, pick them up at Harbor House. We have several retail partners as well, including Nicolay Bank and Whisk and Arrow, that will be selling signs to help create and promote awareness of domestic violence. Because what ties everything we've talked about together is being recognized as a safe space can save a life. We had... Someone last year who was a complete stranger ring a doorbell of someone who had a purple porch website and said, or sign on their house and said, Hey, could you help me? I think I'm in danger. That is the power of awareness. And that is the power of being a safe space. That stranger was safer than their own home. And so that purple awareness brings way more attention than I think people understand. And you're also then donating to Harbor House, which keeps all of our programs 100% free for clients. It is a 24-7 operation. We serve mm-hmm. upwards of 1,500 people a year. And so we need that support from the community. So this is a chance to show that you are there for victims, that you believe victims, and that you want them to have access to these programs. Yeah, but it also makes it a community issue rather yeah. than a family issue. It's not a personal, it's, it's public. Out on, it's out on everybody's porch. Exactly. Yeah. We so. can't avoid it when we see it. Right. And that's the biggest thing. Love that. Yeah. So you yeah. can go to our website mm-hmm. at harborhousewi.org slash purple porch. And we will put that in the show notes for anybody that wants to um, take part in that for yeah. October. That'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. Yeah. It brings a lot. It's hard to explain the amount of relief and support it can provide someone who is in an abusive relationship or who was in an abusive relationship. It's just knowing that there is someone who's going to believe them can make a difference in that person's will at that point. So it's, it's crucial. 
So if anyone is interested, please go to the website um, and oh, again, call anytime. Yep. If you have questions, if you think maybe something is concerning or not, if not, no question is dumb, no question is too small. We're here to help. I think that's a really great place to end on. I think that so was a too. really um, awesome conversation. And we thank you guys so much for your time and for being such an asset in our community. It's just so wonderful to have you guys and um, do all the things that you guys do. Yeah. Well, thank it's you like, for doing this. Yeah. You guys are doing great work. Yeah. We, we appreciate the, the time. Anytime we can talk and educate Again, yeah. we're happy to do it. I, we could talk again for 16 more hours. <laughs> I mean, we threw so much information out there, but like, we've scratched the surface yeah. 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 of the complexity. So we're happy to be yep. here. And thank you again for promoting this, too. Thank, thank you, guys. guys. Thank you. All the Sins of Wisconsin was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Fallon and Mims. Thank you so much to all of our listeners, supporters, friends, and family that continually allow us to do what we love. If you love our show as much as we love you, please give us a glowing rating and review. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to see what we are up to and email us your sinner tales at allthesinsofwi at gmail.com. Episodes of All the Sins of Wisconsin are available for free wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't Don't forget, forget, we we love you. you.